You're listening to Afraid to Ask, a podcast where we ask experts your embarrassing or controversial questions so that you don't have to. My name is Craig, and on this episode, my colleague Alison and I will be chatting to AUT Professor of History Paul Moon and Professor of Law Chris Gledhill about the difference between free speech and hate speech. We're all entitled to say what we want, but when does our freedom of speech cross the line? What are we not allowed to say? About halfway through the episode, we'll be throwing to Stan on the street, who will be asking the students of AUT what they think about free speech, hate speech, and the differences between them. Remember, if you've got a question you're afraid to ask, please send it to us on social media using the hashtag AskAUT. Let's get on with the show. How can you talk if you haven't got a brain? What's your record for consecutive questions asked? I say who's on first, what's on second, I don't know who's on third. What's the deal with airplane peanuts? Do you understand the words that are coming out of my mouth? And at this point, I'm too afraid to ask. Let's break this down to start with. Uh, Chris and Paul, I'd love to hear from you both. First of all, what is free speech? Well, free speech is people exercising their personality, their autonomy, their views about ideas and communicating those ideas to other people and receiving ideas from other people as part of the general discussion in a free and democratic society. And legally, what's wrapped around that? Well, legally what's wrapped around that is it's a right, but it's a right which is what we'd call a qualified right, because uh, it's a right which has limitations on it, such that you can't use your freedom of speech to improperly interfere with the rights of other people. And of course the big question is, what is improper? Mm. What's the limit? So we've talked about um, free speech from a legal perspective. Um, Paul, can you give us any insights into what freedom of speech would be defined as and perhaps historically? Well, it, it's, it's changed over the centuries, obviously, but in the European tradition, if we go back to the 17th century with John Milton, the 19th century with John Stuart Mill, the 20th century with Emile Durkheim, one of the things, these all proponents of free speech, one of the things they all had in common was free speech was essentially about the right to argue, the right to say something that's different from what other people are saying. It's very easy to have free speech where everyone agrees with you, but um, it's that idea of arguing. And the reason for that, and Durkheim probably expressed it best, was that society tends to advance and mature if you have conflicting opinions that are discussed, because that's where you get progress from. Let's look at hate speech, which is possibly a little trickier. How would you guys define that? Well, again, because I'm a lawyer, I'm going to be legalistic about these things. Look, in Article 19 of the International Covenant on Civil and Political Rights, which protects uh, freedom of expression, it does make the point that uh, it's a right which has responsibilities with it. And then Article 20 of the ICCPR goes on and says, you can't say things which advocate hostility, violence, discrimination, based on people's uh, national racial or religious background. So there is a clear distinction there between you can say frankly what you want as long as you are not inciting this hatred or discrimination against uh, groups of people based on their background. Mm, lots of subjectivity around that though. What, yeah, what, sure. There is sub- yeah, there's certainly subjectivity and there certainly still needs for judgment. Uh, the fact that it's in this human rights framework doesn't mean that there's Uh, no grey areas or no instances where you've got to reach a decision as to whether you're one side of the line or the other. But at least the principle is there Mm. that you have to, as it were, restrain your own rights if that has such an adverse impact on the rights of others that it incites hatred, discrimination or so on against them. How do you see it, Paul? Well, I know that's the case. I think it's appalling. We should be allowed to discriminate against beliefs that are bad. I discriminate against 
Nazis, for example, I find that those beliefs are inherently bad for all sorts of reasons. If I criticise them, some people could interpret that as hate speech, and that's the problem, that hate speech is something that's in the eye or the mind of the beholder. It's, it's not a clear line, and you can, when, you, when you get down to it, you start trying to examine what is hate speech, what's freedom of expression, and it's so difficult to determine. Where would you see something moving into hate speech? I have real trouble identifying what it is. I know some people are hateful when they talk. They deliberately want to hurt others, and that's not good. The knee-jerk reaction is to say, well, look, we don't want hate in our society, so let's legislate or regulate against it. That doesn't solve it. We've had, uh, for example, attempts to control racism through legislation in this country, and all the indications are that, if anything, racism has got worse in the last several decades. So simply suppressing speech as a way of controlling hatred doesn't work. Mm-hmm. You've commented about people not having the right not to be offended, and I think that's something that people grapple with because they do take offence and then it's easy to get to that label of calling it hate speech because they don't like it. Yeah, well, firstly, offence. If you're offended about something, it doesn't mean that you're right. And secondly, my question would be, well, so what if you want to ban what I say simply because you're offended? That's a pretty cumbersome way of dealing with it. I think the best way, if you disagree with what I say, is just to come back with a better argument, which I think Chris is about to do. <laughs> oh, thanks for confidence there, Paul. I, there is nothing which says you have a right not to be offended. No problem with that uh, being an example of freedom of speech. It's where it goes over the line of making people feel insecure in their um, integrity. So, for example, use the reference that Paul's made to Nazism. There is no problem with challenging and criticising Uh, people for their Nazi views because that is not anything that's protected. They're not Nazis because of their background. They're Nazis because they have those hateful beliefs and you can and should challenge those. It's where you'd have, for example, people saying things about Palestinians or Jewish people or Maori and they're doing it in a way which tries to make people feel they're not part of community and subject to attack subject to discrimination on the basis of not their beliefs, not what they've chosen to express, but who they are because of features of their nationality, their religion, their ethnic origin, matters of which people have no control. I think you've got control over your religion though, haven't you? If you belong to a religion that espouses racist views, and there are some religions like that, I don't think that's a sanction or protection that you're responsible for those beliefs. You can opt in or out of that religion. Uh, You can in uh, the comfortable West. You can't necessarily in other parts of the world. So we've talked a bit about the the grey areas between expressing freedom of speech and when it crosses the line into hate speech. Interested to hear what you guys think about who gets to make those decisions. Who ultimately decides when something crosses that line? Well, again, in uh, the Western liberal tradition uh, and parliamentary democracies, we've got, in effect, uh, a group of people make decisions. Starting point is legislators who come up with laws and uh, put definitions in place. But in the background, you've got judges who interpret laws and apply them. uh, And judges, amongst other things, will interpret laws so far as possible to be compliant with human rights standards. So ultimately, it will be a judge who decides whether the phraseology used by the legislators goes too far and can be interpreted in a way that properly protects legitimate free speech, but equally properly protects 
people who would be adversely affected by hate speech. What about the prevailing sense of the community's views on these things and, and what kind of influence does that have? Does that shift that, that line? over time? There's a whole lot of pressures. There's the the formal part which deals with legislation and then there's the informal restrictions on free speech Um, and we've seen it with various organisations which basically mount campaigns against people with whom they disagree. That effectively stifles people. There are certain views that are legal to express in this country but if you do express them you'll face quite serious personal and perhaps professional consequences so there's an informal pressure and that's that's become increasingly a problem because obviously the internet allows for those views to be spread very quickly and for Mm. sort of mob rule to exist. And there's a lot of um, media coverage and attention at the moment around universities and whether, particularly in the US, they're becoming places where only liberal views are being expressed and arguably the right wing or more conservative views are being prevented. Um, is that something that, that you guys think about or are aware of? Is it is it a thing in New Zealand as well? Well, the US has always had problems in that regard, usually actually the other way, I'd have thought, because of their um, reliance on donations from corporations and so on. So the reason why the kind of American academics trade union was formed, which in its constitution promotes the critic and conscience role that we've got in legislation in New Zealand, the reason it was formed was because academics were being made redundant, but because they said things that were contrary to the interest of corporations and therefore the, the donors to the various universities. So I think you're right there, and Paul's certainly right, that these informal pressures that exist outside the legislative framework, they can be very stifling of free speech. And it's right that groups such as academics get together and put in place ideas and principles which say freedom of speech should be respected in those situations. Now, the modern setting for this is the accusation that you you have to be incredibly um, PC to be in a university setting. Well, to the extent that being PC means you can't be casually racist and sexist and so on. Uh, I'm frankly all in favour of that. But there has to be an acceptance that in a university setting, particularly with a critic and conscience role that we've got as a, as I say, a statutory role in New Zealand, that does include discussing ideas which might make people feel uncomfortable. But as we said earlier on, freedom of speech Uh, includes uncomfortable speech. Mm. It's only a very pretty, well, frankly, pretty narrow group of statements which go over the line of inciting hatred or inciting discrimination, as in inciting things which you have a right to be protected against. So if you don't have a right not to be made to feel uncomfortable, you have to put up with speech you do have a right not to be discriminated against, so speech which encourages or incites that. Now, of course, where you draw that border on a particular comment or a particular subject, yeah, there are going to be people who have different views on that. Paul, I, I was interested, in, I think that you often encounter requests or, um, ask, or ask questions in the public forum about, uh, as a historian, and sometimes some of the things you say certainly get reported in a way that could be considered controversial. Do you actively have a filter or be aware when you're having those conversations, or are you able to let it go, focus on the history and, and say your piece? I'd like to think that what I do say, hopefully in the historical context, is evidence-based. And if people find the evidence controversial, that's something perhaps they have to contend with rather than me. And yes, there are uh, I mean, this sort of range of comments. I've had occasions where I've had, I think, over about a thousand 
emails and messages that some of them were, were very hostile and that's unfortunate but that reflects more on the people making the comments than, than on me I'm quite happy to debate the issues quite a separate thing when people make personal attacks as a way of debating the issues but going back to the issue of, of universities one of the troubling things that's been happening in some countries in the west is the advance of the BDS movement which is a movement which as far as universities are concerned aims to boycott Israeli academics on the basis that they are Israeli and it's a really a form of anti-Semitism but um, it has quite profound implications. This group says because we don't agree with what the Israeli government may be doing we will boycott ideas and thoughts and views from academics in that country. I think that's a, a terrible step backwards and it seems to be gaining ground in a lot of states in the United States and a lot of parts of Europe as well. I guess it's interesting so you put a legal framework on that but it's not quite hate speech is it and that's where that or I assume it would have been stopped in some way, shape or form. Well, you have the freedom to say you want to boycott something because you disagree with it, and I think they've, in this case, appropriated a lot of the language from the American Civil Rights Movement, from the anti-apartheid movement, and as I say, they have the right to say that. The problem is that the consequences of what they're trying to do is actually stifling free speech. So there is this thing between legal frameworks, historical knowledge, and then this thing of hate, because it's an emotional thing. So, you know, a well-reasoned argument is great, but, but it seems to me that, that there's so much emotion comes into this, and this is why we get these extreme responses to certain things, and, and of course social media enables that in many ways. And it's almost like it's, it's, the, it's the two fight against one another, because you've got these great ways that people can express themselves, and great ways that they can do it without any real... Um, filters or any any consideration to how that's affecting other people mm. where is that going to lead us well, i think historically it leads us to actually quite an interesting place because if you look at a lot of these social advances that have happened abolition of slavery the right of women getting the vote things like that they've all happened in, in environments where there has been fairly loose restrictions on speech if you look at the regressive periods in human history you can see they correlate very closely with restrictions on free speech um, so the restrictions are there for good intent and um no one wants more hate. I mean, if anything, we want a lot less. But simply trying to stop people saying hateful things which don't cross the threshold into being illegal doesn't get rid of that hate. Mm. It, it's, it's a false view that you think you can control it through that. I've talked a bit about um, some of the things that um, you can sort of do stifle free speech. Interested to hear your view on whether you think the act of self-censorship impacts free speech at all. So people will you know, hold the views to themselves because they're afraid of being outed or being um, becoming a target for backlash? Well, I think it depends whether that self-censorship is people putting their brain in gear before they put their mouth in gear. So some self-censorship can be a good thing. If it's self-censorship because they don't feel secure in expressing their views, then that's where we might have a problem, mm. as long as those views are ones which, you know, part of the legitimate debate and so on. And part of the human rights framework is to, well, effectively to encourage people to have the freedom and the confidence to speak out. And that, of course, as academics, is something that we should be encouraging because, as Paul says, things get better if you have proper debate about things. That's where um, ideas can be developed, challenged, improved, and so on. Mm. So we certainly want to have a society where not only is there less hate, but more freedom of expression, as long as it doesn't go over these borders. There's sometimes an, uh, an idea that the legal framework and the historical framework are different things, or may lead to different results. The reason we've got the legal framework that I talk about, the human rights framework, is precisely because of the lessons of what went wrong in history, 
when we didn't have proper respect for the rights and freedoms of others. You know, slavery, colonialism, eugenical sterilization and extermination were all based on the pre-human rights framework of ideas that people were different in value. The starting point for the human rights framework is everyone's equal in dignity and rights, and amongst the rights you have are freedom of expression, respecting, of course, the limitations that are imposed on that. So actually, when we're talking about what should be acceptable today, in terms of this balance between the right to freedom of expression and the rights of other people not to be subject to hostility, discrimination, etc. That's all based on the idea that we need a framework to replace what was so badly wrong in the past. To the extent that we've still got the problems, and clearly we still have problems, it's because we're not putting that framework into place. That would be my perspective anyway. Now, possibly have a slightly different perspective simply because a few months ago the New Zealand Human Rights Commission submitted a report to the United Nations in which it recommended that there be a restriction on what it calls disharmonious speech, which is speech which is likely to upset other people or to reduce harmony. It wasn't targeted at ethnic groups, it was targeted at religious groups and only some religious groups. So in a sense the, the Human Rights Commission is also discriminating now against which religious groups will be subject or not subject to disharmonious speech. But the point is it's actually, I think, quite a regressive step because it's saying you can't say something that's disharmonious. I would have thought that it's precisely the sort of thing that you should be free to say. If you disagree with something, even if it causes some disharmony, you should be free to express that. So I think that, in a sense, the Human Rights Commission may be getting a bit carried away with itself there. So the fundamentals remain, but you're talking about kind of messing with the fundamentals and putting another layer or another set of constraints around the fundamentals that, that Chris has explained, right? That's right, in, in a way that I just can't see would lead to any good. Yeah. Um, because what tends to happen is that when you start suppressing people's ability to speak on these topics, the views don't go away. They just get put in the pressure cooker, they manifest themselves in more yeah. subtle ways. Um, this has particularly been the case with racism, that racism still exists, but the ways in which it manifests itself now are much more difficult to detect. People know intuitively when they're being subject to racism, but much harder to pin a case on the person who's subjected mm. them to it. When things aren't overt, they don't disappear. They just mutate into a much more sinister form in some cases. Yeah, in some cases, but not necessarily. I think you've also got to accept that sometimes uh, the use of the law and legal frameworks is a way of modifying behaviour, albeit over time. Mm. So, you know, everybody knows that 30 years ago drink driving wasn't a problem because everybody did it and nobody thought it was unacceptable. The law played a role in making it unacceptable to go out and drink drive. So changing in attitudes, and I think if you've got um, frameworks that make racism illegal, so you can't racially discriminate against people in the workplace, you, you know, we now don't actually have so many racist jokes on TV anymore. And one of the reasons for that is that the framework including the legal framework, has changed. So I think you, you don't necessarily just drive things underground. Sometimes you can change ideas by having legislation which properly prohibits something. And on the suggestion from the um, Human Rights Commission about disharmonious speech, that's the sort of thing which I'd have thought, if any legislation to that effect comes in, that's where the judges would come in and interpret it appropriately. And the interpretation would be, I'm pretty sure, you can say things which are disharmonious as long as they don't go over the line of inciting hatred or discrimination based on people's uh, ethnic or religious uh, grounds because 
we've got a society which is fundamentally a society of the rule of law and human rights uh, and that's where the human rights framework would say the, the line should be drawn. But doesn't the very use of this idea of disharmonious and somehow trying to control that put another barrier to free speech potentially? But it depends what disharmonious is interpreted to mean. Disharmony, because that would mean many different things to many different people, that's where you have to have people who make the decision as to what it actually means, and that's the role of judges in society. Well, one of the concerns about the Commission's report was that when they deal with this issue of disharmonious speech, it's out of context to anything else. They don't say disharmonious speech that causes this or that mm. does this. They simply say the fact of the speech being potentially disharmonious, again, to be interpreted by a judge, is in itself a problem. And that's, that's horrendous. I, I, I'd hate to live in a state where the state and the apparatus of the state tells me what might or might not be disharmonious, what views I have that might upset other people. Who defines what disharmonious is? Well, the judges do, but it may well be that they in turn are influenced by the reaction. So if there's a well-organised reaction to a statement, people wail and gnash their teeth and say that you know, we feel there's great disharmony, disharmonious consequences as a result of this speech, that may well influence public opinion and judicial opinion even. Was that likely to go through, that, that recommendation? They tried for hate speech provision, I think, about a year ago. Then they said the Commission said they wouldn't be interested in doing it. Then they've submitted this report to the UN, which seems as a precursor to something else. So it's very hard to know what, what's going on in the Human Rights Commission, but certainly the, the trajectory is for something along these lines. The effect of a report to the UN would be that the government gets a chance to put in a counter-report and then the relevant experts at the UN would come up with a view as to whether New Zealand's legal framework actually adequately protects rights or not. So there's quite a few steps to go through before anything would come in relating to disharmonious speech, whatever that ends up being interpreted to mean. In your opinion, what would you say is free speech? Being able to voice your own opinions without being criticised. Free speech is just being able to have your own opinion and to say what you feel like you want to say and what you believe. Having the ability to speak what's truly on your mind and not feeling like you need to hold back. I suppose the ability to just talk freely and not be shut down for different ideas or opposing ideas to whoever you're talking with. What would you say is hate speech? Talking down about someone or something for the pure reason to talk it down with no logic or background information. I think hate speech is when you take your opinions and you try to force it on other people and like if somebody doesn't see something the same way as you, you're degrading that person for what they believe. There's a fine line between free speech and hate speech. What do you think the difference is between them? I think the, the biggest difference is like if you're saying something without any intention of discriminating or hating on somebody else, whereas you purposely saying things or saying things with malice. You can say that you don't particularly like this kind of group, but if you're trying to influence other people to think the same as you, that can be considered hate speech. This idea of checks and balances um, on freedom of speech, as well as, I guess, uh, opportunities for people to ex express their views, I'm really interested in how some of the social media um, entities, if you like, um, are starting to be pulled into that. So Facebook being the obvious example, um, there's been a bit of um, noise on Facebook recently about a rapper in the US, Little B, who's had some statements removed because he talked about white people, guns, hatred, etc. And they've said, well, our, our, our community rules apply across the board. And so it's kind of now we've got this entity that is already potentially very influential socially, almost making these moral judgments. Do you think that's good? 
bad? Interesting? Uh, it's certainly interesting. I think it's bad. And the reason I think it's bad is that that hands over to a private entity, which is a profit-making entity, um, in the way that, as Paul was mentioning in earlier, sometimes it's these um, kind of social controls, informal controls, and in the modern world, that's big business controls. So, you know, Facebook's notorious with its um, morality relating to um, breastfeeding, for mm. example. Mm. You know, you can't put up a picture which shows a nipple. Um, because some people might be offended by that. Well, that's precisely an area where there should be appropriate freedom of speech for all sorts of reasons. The reason I don't want Facebook controlling that and the reason I'd like that to be uh, an area where actually there is, whether it's legislation or uh, international treaties or what have you, something which has a democratic input and a principled input because democratic states are bound by human rights frameworks. Mm. That's the sort of arrangement I'd like to see in society rather than having Facebook or Google or some other big monolithic profit-making organisation make the rules. Yeah, it's a tricky one because I suppose being a business they could answer, well, we have the right to do what we want. But as you say, the scale in which they operate means that there has to be something perhaps that prevents excesses and that does a lot of people very heavily influenced by social media um, it has the potential to act as a sort of de facto mob rule and it has the, the potential to silence people as well so a um, very difficult issue to, to grapple with but underlying it I think has to be the fact that the state should have an obligation to protect the rights of people to express what they feel. There's, there's the other issue with Facebook is that as an American entity that has users all over the world, does that mean that what people are saying are, is going to be bound by US law, or how does that work? The way the internet can be controlled, frankly, means that its output in any particular country can be controlled. So we, we haven't given up the idea of nation-states having their own laws. Yeah, there's pressures from the US because it's such a you know big trading country, an important country for all sorts of other reasons. But we have our rights in New Zealand to control Facebook's output in New Zealand, if I can put it that way. That means that the framework, again, is one of putting laws in place for the particular country, which can reflect a more tolerant approach to freedom of speech, can reflect the conservative or less conservative nature of a society. It's perfectly proper, for example, to have different rules on freedom of speech and freedom of expression in different countries, because that reflects differences in the culture and the uh, setup of a particular country. So we don't just hand it over to Facebook, neither do we just hand it over to the US. But then you, when you think about that, you think about the Chinas of this world who are doing exactly that. I mean, I think a lot of people would be outraged at the idea of state intervention in social media or in that internet space, which is perceived to be a, a place where all things are equal to a degree. I, mean, I guess it's where, where does that, I mean, is state intervention better than commercial intervention I think you're saying probably mm. but it's still intervention isn't it? Uh, I'm not saying probably I'm saying definitely <laughs> uh, in that context look n nobody would have any problem if the state says to Facebook were Facebook to do this you can't put paedophile stuff up there nobody have a problem with that mm. that's a perfectly legitimate stop to freedom of speech because you can't espouse paedophile ideas. Well, it then just becomes a question of where do we draw the line? And then we're back to where we effectively started mm -hmm. with what are the definitions of hate speech or unacceptable speech. And if it's inciting harm to other people or discrimination against other people, that's a pretty bright line. 
uh, and a pretty um, acceptable line I'd have thought to draw. What becomes difficult still is when have you said something that actually goes across that line? And that's where things like the context of it comes in. So is there a, is there a dog whistle behind what you're saying? So that actually you're saying something perfectly neutral, but you know that you're aiming at a particular group. And we have to have judgments uh, drawn on things like that. One thing that I've noticed when people are saying things which do offend other people and you know could in some context be considered hate speech, a lot of the time the argument that they'll go to is that oh well, you know it's satire, you know it's ironic, it's satire. In your view, is that a is that a cop out? Is that an excuse, or is that or is there some merit in that? Well, I think there's some merit in that because it's part of the context in which you say something. If you say something which is satirical, meaning you're actually aiming at somebody in power, Mm. well, that's perfectly fine. That's an example of acceptable freedom of speech. If your satire is actually aimed at undermining a particular religious or ethnic group, and, you know, people can be satirical in that regard, Mm. then that would be equally within the hate speech exemption Mm. to freedom of speech. So it's it's a contextual Mm. matter. So I don't think you can say straightforwardly, satire therefore good, you've got to look at the context in which it is, but the context of it being satire is a relevant factor you take into account. I think Jonathan Swift encouraged the Irish when they're going through a particularly tough time economically to eat their children, and um, he suggested that children make good nutrition and so on, that was a a satire. Um, I suppose nowadays if he was around and did that, he would be accused of being racist and so on. Um, It's a brilliant piece of satire, but um, one of the problems is I think that that what, what society finds acceptable or what the self-appointed spokespeople for society tend to find as acceptable is, is very much a, a diminishing realm. So a lot of things that perhaps 50, 100, 200 years ago would be quite acceptable to say that now there'd be concerns raised, and this is particularly in the case of religion, that um, we did have a period where we could criticise religions, um, could talk about them openly. We, In the popular sense now we don't have that anymore. There are certain things people feel about some religions that they know very well. There'd be severe repercussions if they said them publicly. I think that's concerning. I'd love to ask each of you, are you optimistic that we're going to get the balance right between freedom speech, freedom of speech and making sure that we do protect people from hate speech? Do you think we're in the right space at the moment or do you have concerns about that? I'm an optimist generally. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think if people make use of the relevant frameworks... I think we've got a decent framework in place, frankly, uh, at least at that level of uh, high principle. So yes, I'm optimistic that part of the ongoing debate about where the lines should be drawn will mean that we draw the lines in the right sort of place. I think the lines are reasonably well drawn at the moment. What's concerning is when we have government agencies that are looking to shift those lines to prevent only some groups from being subject to disharmonious speech, for example, and that um, as Chris has already mentioned, that, that has the potential to change social attitudes. He gave the drink driving case where drink driving is much less acceptable now because of penalties imposed on it, much more severe penalties and a degree of social condemnation that's followed. It's possible that if disharmonious speech became a feature of our law that over time there'd be a generation of New Zealanders who felt that that was acceptable and there'd be social pressure to make sure none was disharmonious in what they said. And I think that's a very dangerous thing. I think we have to be on the lookout for it. And I'm concerned that groups like the Human Rights Commission seem to be heading in that direction. I don't know why, I don't know what's behind it. Not only the fact that they're doing that, but the fact they're doing it in a discriminatory way because they're only targeting 
and they're explicit in the report, they target certain ethnic groups and they mention certain religions for example, they're also explicit in the fact they don't refer to the majority ethnic group in New Zealand, you can say something disharmonious towards them and this isn't inferred from it, this is what they're explicit about. So there's some real concerns there, but overall I think yeah, we have to be optimistic. Chris, I've heard you talk about, and um, you mentioned conscience of critic of society as academics, and I've also heard you comment about it for our students as well. So, I mean, to end positively, I guess, you know, the universities are a place where this stuff can, can be debated and hopefully improved and and we can keep grappling with it. Would you agree? Oh, yeah, yeah. We should be at the forefront in uh, universities. Uh, of uh, making sure that society is improving and if we think that society improves by having a slight shift in where the acceptable freedom of speech uh, the lines are drawn we should participate in that debate in fact we should be leading that debate I, I think the lines are probably at the limits at the moment I think that the if we're looking at social improvement and this is something that's been consistent in Western history for about 300 years it's 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 the right to say things that are unpalatable to others that can be interpreted as hate speech at times. I think hate speech is a, is a misnomer and it's a very subjective term for what often just turns out to be different views. By labelling it hate speech, you, I think it's, it's almost a stick to beat people with, to shut them down. People don't want to be known as, as someone who talks or uses hate speech, so they'll, they'll stop expressing that view. It's just different speech. As Chris has already said, we already have statutes in place which prevent people from inciting violence, from racism and so on which are all necessary things, but beyond that I think we, we need to encourage more freedom rather than succumb to social arguments that we need fewer freedoms to protect ourselves. I think we're a bit more socially mature and advanced that we should be able to monitor ourselves without the state getting involved. You'd agree, wouldn't you, Paul, that we're in a better place than we were 300 years ago? I think we're in a worse place in some respects because, admittedly, 300 years ago um, people were still being thrown in prison for ex expressing views. But in some respects it's worse because we have the return of a mob rule type mentality where, and I know numerous examples of people um, from a wide cross-section of society who will not now express publicly what their views are. It's not illegal to have those views, not illegal to express them, but they won't because there's this new form of online mob rule or not even necessarily online, it might be in person, that prevents people from expressing those views. And that, that's a concern. So perhaps the positive outtake for students is you use your time here, this is actually a good environment for us to potentially push push the envelope or at least um, you know exercise your, your freedoms. Yeah, well, the fact that we're having this discussion, I think, is helpful too. Mm -hmm. um, and it shows that the university has a commitment to different views, perhaps. Thanks very much for listening. I hope you enjoyed this episode and maybe learned a little something about the freedom of speech. If you have any questions you're afraid to ask, please send them to us using the hashtag AskAUT. If you like this podcast, please rate and review us on iTunes. And tell all your friends. Thanks again for listening. You know how to whistle, not just you. What does Marcellus Wallace look like? What's the deal with Aquaman? What's the matter with me, what? baby? What's the matter with you? Speak English and what? How can you talk if you haven't got a brain? What's your record for consecutive questions asked? I say who's on first, what's on second, I don't know who's on third. What's the deal with everything? Do you understand the words that are coming out of my mouth? And at this point, I'm too afraid to ask. Why?